Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Well, for somebody reading it or hearing it for the first time, the story that we're about to look at, the story about the Philippian jailer, would bring up lots of questions if they're thinking about it honestly and remembering that these are real people and these are real events. Multiple questions. So so the first one, probably, why do people in Philippi get so out of their minds angry with Paul and Silas? And again, I'm, you know, you'll see all of this as we move through. You may not have read the story in a while, but that's something that happens. So somebody hearing the story for the first time might think, why are they so angry? about this particular situation. And then the flip side, why do Paul and Silas have so much joy and trust in the Lord when they're in prison and after they had been beaten and they're locked up? And then why do they refuse to run away when the doors are open and they can flee and leave this prison and not come back? But they don't do that. They stay. And then why is Paul so insistent at the end of our passage that the city authorities come back and apologize for locking them up? That's sort of an unusual thing. Even if all those other things you think, yep, got it, got it, got it, got it. That one, you might think, what is, what's the deal with that? What's happening there? There's, there's questions that would come up from reading this story. Well, the answer to all of those questions, at least a central answer, is found in the middle of our passage. So let's go there real quick. Look at verses 30 and 31. This is the answer to all those questions. Then he brought them out. This is the Philippian jailer. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now that's the gospel. That's the good news of Christianity. And that is the answer to all of these questions. That's why these things look odd is because of the gospel. And this is the way that we'll break down this passage. So what is it the gospel produces? We're going to see these four things. So first, the gospel produces anger. Second, the gospel produces communion with God. Third, it produces love. And finally, the gospel produces tunnel vision. So those are the four things we'll see come out, at least those four things from this passage. Well, our passage begins with verses 16 through 24 and this story that explains why Paul and Silas end up in jail. What is it they're doing in prison? How'd they get there? And it's kind of a crazy story. So we'll pick up in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, notice the we there. So Luke, who authored Acts, all of a sudden, he is there with them. So that's not really accounted for in the text, but he's using the first person there, we. So Luke is along with this band of missionaries at this point. Verse 16, and we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Okay, so... Pretty wild. So there's this female slave, this young girl. She has a demon inside of her. And where you see that English word divination, there she had a spirit of divination. So it's actually the Greek word for python. It's a cognate, so it sounds almost exactly like python. And what's happening there, the locals in this area believe that there's this god that was like a snake god and that there's evil spirits sent from that god and that these evil spirits were able to tell the future. Well, we understand that part of that is true, right? These are, these are demons. They're the ones that are doing this thing. And it's, it's good to remember, especially for folks like us, there are such things as demons. There is this spiritual world that we can't see. It's easy to forget about it because we can't see it, but it's there. Ephesians 6 verse 12, we wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So one of these spiritual forces of evil is working in this slave girl, this demon that is inside of her. 
And because his spirit would work through this girl to tell people uh, things that a mere human wouldn't be able to know, people came to them for that. So she's owned by these men. So they come and they give money to hear what this girl has to say. So whereas today people might go to a palm reader, people in Philippi would give her owners money. So this slave girl could tell them things about themselves they didn't know or something about their future. Well, as Paul and associates, uh, he and his associates, as they're traveling through Philippi, they're preaching the gospel. Look again at what happens. Verse 17. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And these, this she kept doing for many days. Now, first things first, you may wonder why this demon is saying true things. So if Satan, if, if the whole thing he's trying to do is undercut the Lord and undercut Christ, how come here this demon is saying true things? He's saying these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, don't forget what we saw in the book of James months and months ago. Demons know all of these things about the Lord. So like we talked about there, demons would most likely get a higher test on the theology exam than any of us would. They know all of those things. And oftentimes they proclaim those true things, at least in part. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 41. It's talking about demons dealing with Jesus. And it says, and demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. So we've seen this in scripture before. The demons are proclaiming truly who the Lord is. But, and this fits with what we see in our passage, this is interesting. Every single time in the gospel stories, when a demon proclaims who Jesus is, he rebukes that demon. It happens every single time. Luke 4, verse 41. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Verse 17 in our passage. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So see, it's helpful for us to see somebody can say true things about Jesus and still not be for Jesus. That's a thing that happens all the time. It brings a, a lot of unhelpfulness when people think that if somebody is speaking true things about Jesus, they must be for Jesus. That's not the case. And we see it here. So just like Jesus rebukes the demons, who are saying true things about him. Paul does the same thing here, verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. So Paul casts out this demon. Well, look what happens next, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And this is our first main point this morning. The gospel produces anger. The gospel produces anger. Now, sometimes it produces anger because of the message itself, the message proper. So the Jews, the Jewish authorities in particular, they didn't like the gospel in part because in the gospel, Jesus is being proclaimed to be God. And they thought that was blasphemy. So there's a thing about the message, the actual content of the gospel message that they don't like. But see, in the situation in our passage, that's not the thing these guys are pushing back on. Because when Paul is rolling through town and he's preaching the gospel, they're not upset with him then. They're fine to let that happen. They weren't upset with that talk about Christ. No, what upset them was the implications of the gospel. That's what made them mad. They didn't like it that the gospel actually affected their life. That's where they drew the line. And they said, okay, uh, enough is enough. And in particular, they lost their source of income. Because they could no longer exploit this slave girl. 
That's why they're upset. And, and see, our culture is oftentimes the same way. So you've probably got coworkers who have zero problem that you trust in Jesus for your salvation. You, you probably have coworkers, the majority of them, I would think, that are even okay with you talking about your belief in Christ. But see, it's when it flips over to where your belief in Christ means that you can't participate in that part about the business that you think is unethical, that particular sales program maybe, something like that. That's where your coworkers will say, okay, enough is enough, right? It's when the gospel actually comes to bear on a particular thing that affects them. That's what will make them angry. So your teacher at school, if you're a student, she or he's probably okay that you've placed your faith in Christ. Probably okay even if you mention that to, to other kids at recess or at lunch. But the second that you're not willing to pretend that a boy is a girl and a girl is a boy, there's a good chance that teacher is going to be upset. And you'll see anger come out then. The gospel oftentimes makes people angry because of the implications of the gospel. So, so people in the Western Hemisphere, everybody loves to talk about how tolerant they are until you mess with their idols. And that's when people get angry. We understand that, right? Even as Christians, that's when we get angry. That's when I lash out at my kids. Is when, when my perception is they're messing with my idols, my comfort, my time, right? People, non-Christians, obviously the same way, but it's, but it's off the leash when they get upset about that. They're, they're fine to put up with belief or even just talk as, as long as it doesn't lead them to having to give up something they want. Oftentimes physical pleasure or here in our passage, money. That's why these guys are mad. Verse 19, but when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And look at what their anger leads to. It ramps up even more. Verse 20, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So they slander Paul and Silas. They say these things that clearly not true. They beat them with big sticks. They put them in jail. The gospel produces anger. And so the, the question for you is, am I ready for that? Am I ready for that? And more than that, am I willing to do that? In college, we would play this game that was as stupid as any other game we played probably, where on the hall, we would stand back to back. You would take your shirt off, and we had a racquetball. And you'd be about 30 or 40 feet away from each other. And you'd have your back turned, and they would throw the racquetball at you as hard as they could at your bare back. And I don't know if you've had a racquetball hit your skin. It stings like few things sting. So you're sitting there, and you're turned around, and usually your eyes are shut, and you're just waiting. Because you're either going to hear the ball whiz by your ear, and you are just praising the Lord, or it's going to hit your back. And you've got that second where it hits, and you know that sting is coming, and then it comes. And for most of us, we were bracing ourselves. You know what that's like. If you think something bad's about to happen, you, you brace yourself. Maybe you tense up. Well, that's the kind of thing that we're supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to be prepared for this. If, if you're following Jesus, in some form or fashion, the sting of persecution will find you sooner or later. Jesus promised us that, so be prepared for it. And more important, be regularly reminding yourself why Jesus is so good that he is worth going through persecution for. That what you get through having him outweighs 
the difficulty you'll have to go through in terms of persecution. When Maria was in labor with Nora, we taped an ultrasound picture to her hospital bed. So as she's laboring, she can see this picture of Nora, and she knows what's coming. She's constantly reminded, this is what I'm laboring for, is this baby, and I know that it'll be worth it. Well, the payoff of Jesus will be worth the pain of persecution. He will. He'll be worth it. You can't remind yourself of that too often. So the gospel will produce anger. Don't be surprised. Be ready for it. The gospel produces anger. But praise God, the gospel doesn't only produce anger. That's what it does for, for the non-Christian. But for the Christian, for the one who's trusting in Christ, the gospel produces communion with God. This is our second point this morning from this passage. The gospel produces communion with God. So here are Paul and Silas in prison. They've literally been beaten up. And then they're put in the most maximum security part of the jail. They're fastened into the stocks, which are those wooden things that would go around your feet that would keep your legs straight. Not, not a comfortable situation to sleep in. Okay, so, so what would your response be if, if you were in their shoes there? If you were in their stocks? How would you be responding to this situation? You, your back is bloody and beaten. You're uncomfortable. You can't sleep. You're locked up unfairly. Look at how Paul and Silas respond. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. The gospel produces communion with God. I I don't know if it's really true, but on TV, praise the Lord, I haven't experienced it in person. On TV, prisoners get one phone call, right? You get locked up, you get to reach out to one person. Well, Paul and Silas, they don't get a phone call. But, but who is it that they're reaching out to? Well, it's the Lord by singing and praying. It's God they're reaching out to. So, so when their world has been turned upside down with beatings and imprisonment, they're reaching out to God. So they're praying and they're singing. Let's start with, with what's probably more intuitive between the two for most of us. So Paul and Silas are praying. And it makes perfect sense, right? It makes perfect sense. They understand that God is the sovereign God of the universe. He's in charge of all things. And so they're reaching out to him in prayer. And that's the same reason that we're supposed to pray. In fact, when we encounter trouble in life, why do we start anywhere else? We oftentimes do. It makes, it makes zero sense. So why is our first reaction oftentimes to reach out to another human for help? Well, why, why is our reaction to try to do some strategic planning right off the bat? Or maybe we just don't want to think about it, so we just try to comfort ourselves with physical pleasure or food or entertainment or for some of you in a way that I don't understand at all, exercise, right? Why do we do those things first before we pray? It it doesn't make any sense. Don't forget what we're taught in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So our plans and other people's help, it will only be fruitful if the sovereign God decides that it will be fruitful. So start out by going to him. So when you're tempted to sin, go straight to God in prayer. When when you hear that a a fellow church member's family is dealing with serious health issues, go straight to the Lord in prayer. When you find out you won't have as much income in this next season of life because of a change in work and you're nervous about that, go straight to the Lord in prayer. The first thing Paul and Silas are doing when we see them in prison is praying. So pray to God before before anything else. 
And praise God, we, we get an opportunity to do that on Sunday mornings in corporate prayer. To do the same thing we see the first established church doing in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. That's what we see here with Paul and Silas, but they aren't only praying. Verse 25 also tells us they're singing hymns to God. And this isn't anything new. God's people have always been a singing people. God's always instructed his people to sing. In fact, his covenant people, Israel, is the first thing they do. that We see them doing when they come out of, uh, out of Egypt. When God brings them out and frees them, Exodus 15, the first thing they're doing is they're singing a song to him about how good he is. How does Jesus close out his time with the disciples after the first Lord's Supper? We're told they sung a hymn. What's one thing we're taught we'll be doing in eternity, for all eternity in the book of Revelation? Singing corporately around the Lamb. Listen to a few passages in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of the reason why we like simple accompaniment, you know, the instruments to be soft enough because the main instrument is our voices. The passage in Ephesians says we're singing to one another, right? Not playing instruments for one another. No, we're singing. It's our voices. We're singing truth to one another. We want to be able to hear one another sing. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why did God create singing? He certainly didn't have to. He could have just had us speak to him, just prose, and just speak to one another in the gathering, just read scripture to one another. Why did he create song where we can sing to him? Well, listen to the 18th century New England pastor, Jonathan Edwards. He gives his best guess. I think it's a good one. This is what he says. He says, and the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections, the way we feel about the Lord. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse, singing, rather than in prose, and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Singing to God does something different than talking to God. Just like talking to God does something different than singing to God, right? We need both and we have both. So do you sing, right? Do you sing? On Sunday mornings, do you actually sing the songs with the body? You should. You, you need that. Singing serves our souls in a unique way. But, but the more fundamental question here isn't why Paul and Silas are praying and singing to God. The more fundamental question is how can they pray and sing to God? How can they do it? He's the God of the universe, and they're just two tiny specks of humans. So just think about how far you would get if you communicated to the office of some world leader. Let's say that you reached out to Joe Biden's office or our governor, Janet Mills' office, or the mayor of Bangor, and you say, hey, I'd like to sing the mayor a song. I'd like to sing the president a song. Can you get me in to sing? That's not going to happen, right? In fact, there's probably going to be some surveillance that comes along with <laughs> With that, right, you, you wouldn't get very far. But see, not only is God huge and significant in those ways where we're not, but he's also holy and we are sinners. 
So there's every reason in the world why it doesn't make any sense that we would have an audience with the Lord to talk to him or to sing to him. And yet Paul and Silas are doing both and he's listening to them. They have communion with God. How? Well, the next scene helps us answer that question. Look at what the Lord does when Paul and Silas are in prison. Verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And again, this is why we pray. God's in charge. He can move things. He brings this earthquake to free them. There's nothing anybody would have expected here. You know, their escape, it would mean death for the jailer. We learn that later. It would mean death for the jailer because they never should have escaped. But even though man did the best he could to keep them secure, God wanted them out, and so he gets them out. He does it by sending this great earthquake. Again, something that they would not have been expecting. And that's good for us to remember, right? There's probably things you're worried about right now, and you just can't see a path forward. Even if you're a believer and you think about, okay, these are things the Lord could do, but I don't think that'll work, and this won't work, and this won't work. There are paths God has at his disposal that you don't even know about, right? There's things like that. They weren't expecting an earthquake. That's what he did. He brought an earthquake. God has all sorts of paths at his disposal, even those you don't know exist. So we should be comforted in that. So he sends this earthquake. It opens the doors, breaks the stocks around their feet. And and all of this sounds like a death sentence to the guy in charge of the jail because he knows if they flee, he's going to get executed because they left on his watch. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. We're going to come back to this in a second, but look at what Paul does. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we all are here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So the details of everything that had just happened, it all converges. And this jailer understands that he has a problem, that his sin is his problem. It separates him from the Lord and he needs salvation. And he thinks that these guys, Paul and Silas, will know how he can get it. So, so most likely he heard them singing and praying the night before, right? That's got to be part of this. That he saw the way that they responded to their suffering and their imprisonment. That's a good reminder, right? The way, you have, the way you handle difficulty in your life in front of your non-Christian friends and coworkers and family, it has an impact. It's significant. People can see that. It looks like the jailer saw that here. He, he may have heard how Paul cast out that demon. He may have heard about the message they were proclaiming to the people. Philippi wasn't a huge town. That was big news. He might have heard about those things. But in any event, he realizes he's a sinner who needs saving and that they can probably tell him how to be saved. And they do just that. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And this is the gospel. This is how a sinner can have their sins forgiven. So they don't have to suffer the eternal wrath of God on the day of his judgment. It's the good news of Christianity. Forgiveness of sins comes through belief in Christ. And like we talked about back in Acts 15, it's not salvation through faith in Christ plus some good works or plus cleaning yourself up in some way. No, salvation comes through faith alone. One really helpful passage for that idea is Romans chapter 4, verse 5 where Paul can say that God justifies the ungodly. 
Those are the people that God justifies, the ungodly, not people that have cleaned themselves up. It's the same thing Jesus said. I didn't come for the uh, healthy. I came for the sick. Those are the people that God declares righteous as people that realize they're ungodly. And it's faith alone in Christ that saves. Our innocent verdict comes by way of trust in Christ because he was perfect on our behalf. And the reason he went to the cross is so he could bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins. That's the gospel. Christ died so this man, the Philippian jailer, doesn't have to. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, quickly, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that that the family, that his family is saved through his belief in Christ. Like he trusts in Christ and then it automatically flows over to save them through his own personal trust. No, we, we know somebody can only be saved through their own personal trust in Christ. But we also know God is, is oftentimes kind to lead people to trust in Christ due in part to the influence of their family. God set up the family that way where we have influence on one another. Parents have influence on our kids. The majority of the Christians I know first heard the gospel from their parents. The vast majority of the Christians I know. I know many Christians who help lead their sibling to the Lord. I even know several cases where parents became Christians because of their children as adults becoming Christians. And those kids were able to share the gospel with their parents and their parents became believers. So keep that in mind as you interact with your family. God set up the family in that way where we have that kind of influence oftentimes on on one another. And that's what happens here. So Paul speaks the same gospel of salvation through trust in Christ to the members of this guy's home. He doesn't just preach to the jailer. He preaches to the members of his home too. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And then by the end of verse 33, it's not just the Philippian jailer who's baptized. It's all his family were told. And what happened in between is explained at the end of verse 34. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So they're all rejoicing. And that word, the way Luke uses it, it's not the way that somebody can just sort of feign happiness. Like, oh, you're happy. I'm happy that you're happy. That's not what this Greek word, the way it's used in Luke and in Acts. No, this is gospel excitement. This is gospel rejoicing. In other words, in Acts and in Luke, the people that rejoice are believers. It's rejoicing in Christ. I like the way John Calvin says it. He said, God brought the jailer's whole family unto godly consent, into trust in the Lord. So, so their sins were forgiven in the same way the jailer's sins were forgiven through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is why Paul and Silas can sing and pray to God, right? It's because they've received an innocent verdict. It's because they've been made right. God's no longer holding them accountable for their sin. And for that reason, they now had a relationship with God. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Christ, that's what's held out to you is that you can have a relationship with the God of the universe, but your sin has to be dealt with. But of course, the good news of the gospel is it can be dealt with not through your working hard and trying to be better, but through trusting in the one who was perfect on your behalf, trusting in Christ alone. And if you want to talk more about that, grab me after the service or or send me an email. Talk to another member of this church, and we can talk more about the gospel and responding to that gospel through trust alone in Christ alone. That seems like a a ludicrous thing, right? A crazy thing that a sinner can talk and sing to God. But, But in the cross, the ludicrous has become reality. That's exactly what we have. The gospel produces communion with God. So this jailer, he's become a Christian. 
But again, we've, we've seen time and time again in Acts, salvation always produces fruit. So this is our third point from the passage. The gospel produces love. And in our passage, it points out three recipients of that love. The, the first one we see is the gospel produces love for fellow Christians. Look at what the jailer does for Paul and Silas. First thing he does, becomes a Christian, verse 33, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. So remember, they'd been beaten with rods the night before. So they've got scars and scratches and blood on their backs. So this brand new Christian, he recognizes that and he wants to give them practical care. So he washes their wounds. Just like Lydia had a house in the passage last week and she knew that Paul and his associates needed a house to stay in. So she offered that house. Well, it's the same thing here. This guy has water. He knows that they need it to wash their wounds. So he, he offers it. First John chapter three, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother, his fellow Christian in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So when you're united to Christ by faith in him, you're made a new creation. And one attribute of that new creation is that that new creation loves their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So the question for you as a Christian, are you seeing the gospel produce this kind of love in you? Or are you willing and even desirous to, to share your resources with fellow believers? To use the imagery in our passage, when was the last time you washed another Christian's wounds, right? When's the last time you took them a meal when they needed it or offered to help pay for a car repair when they didn't have the money or spent time with them to, to encourage them? Pray, pray for the gospel to produce love in you for, for fellow believers. But second, we see in our passage, the gospel produces love for Christ. So for fellow believers, but second, for Christ. Where do we see that? We see it in the fact that jailer instantly wants to obey Jesus the same way Lydia obeyed Jesus in our passage last week. He's baptized, which again, just means somebody's dipped in water to symbolize their connection to Jesus in his death and burial and resurrection. Middle of verse 33, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So these new Christians, they, they keep making, making a beeline straight to baptism. Why is that? It's because it's Jesus' first command to the Christian. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Peter tells brand new Christians in Acts 10, verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So like Jesus tells us in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, don't forget, Jesus isn't the Christian's savior alone. He's also our Lord, right? He's in charge. He calls the shots, verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Well, the gospel produces love for Christ, which means obedience to Christ, that's shown here by this man's baptism. So do you see the gospel producing love for Christ in you? That's a good question for a Christian. Do you see it producing love for Christ in you? And is it the kind of love Christ deserves where it outpaces your other loves? It leaves them behind. It, it won't be perfect obedience, right? But obedience will be present. And it'll be growing obedience through your Christian life. The, the jailer's love for Jesus, it leads to his baptism, so what particular obedience should your love of Christ lead to this week? Something you're holding back. What particular obedience should your love of Jesus lead to this week? 
But there's a third kind of love the gospel produces in our passage, and that's the hardest one for us. That's love for enemies. Love for enemies. So Paul and Silas, they'd been beaten and arrested by these officers of the law. And when the earthquake hits, it frees them and they have a choice to make. They hear their captors saying, I'm going to kill myself. Wouldn't so many people in that situation just say, well, that's what he's got coming. So I'm not going to kill him, but if he kills himself, what am I going to do? I'm taking off. That's what the majority of people would have done. But that's not what Paul and Silas do. They stay. Why? Because they want to share the gospel with this guy. Isn't that wild? This guy who was locking them up, who was keeping them in prison, they have an opportunity to split, and he's got what he's got coming. But they intervene out of love for him. They want to share the gospel with him. They want to do spiritual good to him. Now, just compare that to the low bar that oftentimes keeps us from loving our enemies and especially sharing the gospel with them. So pray the gospel would produce this kind of love for enemies. But, but praise God, that's exactly what the gospel does. It produces love. Well, there's one final thing to see here, which is that the gospel produces tunnel vision. It produces tunnel vision. So this man and his relatives, they've trusted Christ. They've been baptized. They share a meal with Paul and Silas. But look at what happens at the end of our passage. Probably the most surprising thing. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. They're back in prison. They left. They were freed. They were in the Philippian jailer's house. They left his house. They go back to prison of their own accord. It's not forced on them. It's voluntary. They could have just left town, but they don't. So why in the world do they do that? We're given a hint at the very end of our passage. So like we just saw, the authorities sent police to tell Paul and Silas they're free to go. So the, the leaders are probably thinking, we beat these guys up, we put them in jail, they've learned their lesson, right? They're not going to mess with our town again, so tell them to, to get out of here. Look at how Paul responds, verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Okay, so what's going on here? Why is Paul calling out these local authorities? Well, it's probably because he wants to protect the future preaching of the gospel in this town. That's probably the reason. He, he knows that if he just rolls over and he just allows the authorities to, to think they've done what's okay to Paul and Silas, if he doesn't call them out, that will just help standardize that kind of treatment of Christians. And then they'll have the template. Oh yeah, well, we did this to the last guy, so let's do that again. It looks like that's the thing that Paul is pushing back on. And there, there are certainly times where out of love for the gospel, it's good for Christians to push back on authority, in particular when they're practicing persecution. In fact, that's a good thing to pray for. So pray as a Christian that, that federal and state and local authorities wouldn't be allowed to make gospel preaching difficult by targeting Christians or, or targeting the gospel. When Paul tells us to pray for the governing authorities in 1 Timothy 2, listen to the prayer. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2. He says, Pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he says, Pray the authorities would let us live like Christians, that we would have a peaceful life, that we're not being harassed, but we can live in a godly and dignified way. Listen to the next thing he says. This is why. This is good 
And it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the reason Paul gives, he doesn't say, pray that they won't persecute you so you have an easier time, right? Although praise the Lord when that happens, but that's not the reason to pray this prayer. No, the main reason he says to pray it is because the gospel needs to be proclaimed to non-believers so they can be saved. And it's much more difficult to preach the gospel if the authorities are cracking down on it. See, that's the main reason why we pray against persecution and work against persecution, not for our own comfort. No, the main reason should be so the gospel can be proclaimed freely because we want more people to know Christ. So pray for that. When, when you see authorities in government or at work or at school making it more difficult for the gospel to be proclaimed, pray for that. Maybe even get pastoral counsel to see, should, should I push back in some loving and respectful way, right? So Paul calls them out here. He's not worried about himself. You know, after all, he and Silas had been let out of prison. They could have just left. No, he wants a clear path for the gospel. That's the kind of tunnel vision that he has. It's the only thing he's interested in. What's good for the gospel? That's probably why he casts this demon out at the beginning of our passage, right? He doesn't do it until it's, it's disruptive. It's the fact that she's hollering this day after day. When he finally says, okay, that, that's enough. This demon needs to come out of you. It's, it's interfering with the gospel message going out. And at the end of our passage, he's still working to make straight paths for the gospel. Verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the strategy works. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So the gospel had been preached in Philippi. It had made converts. It was set up to continue growing these new believers. That's why they make this move at the end. And so Paul and Silas continue on. So why do the people at the beginning of our passage get so out of their minds angry with Paul and Silas? And, and why do Paul and Silas have this joy and trust in prison? Why do they refuse to leave even when the doors are opened, but instead show care for the Philippian jailer? Why does he, an enemy of Paul and Silas just moments before, why does he show them love and love for Christ all of a sudden? And why is Paul so insistent at the end of our passage that the authorities apologize for locking them up? It's all because of the gospel. Verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's the gospel that drives all of this. So let's pray. It would also drive us and drive our lives for God's glory. Let's pray together.